0: Hello, and welcome again to another conservative history podcast. The title of this one, A Brief History of American Education, Part 2, The Dewey Disease. The date, November 2021, and my name is Belle Avis. Disease, quote, any harmful deviation from the normal structural or functional state of an organism, generally associated with certain signs and symptoms, differing in nature. Unquote. Quote Children who know how to think for themselves spoil the harmony of the collective society, which is coming where everyone is interdependent. Unquote. John Dewey, American Educator. Quote As adults, we have to start thinking and believing that there isn't really any such thing as someone else's child, for that reason, we cannot permit discussions of children and families to be subverted by political or ideological debate. Unquote. Hillary Rodham Clinton, former Secretary of State and Senator from New York. Quote. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Unquote. Former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe. And finally, quote. When told by a liberal activist that she cared as much for Phil Graham's children as he did, Graham responded, Prove it. Tell me their names. Unquote. An anecdote from former Senator Phil Graham. Beginning with the rout of business-minded, small-government, bourbon Democrats in 1894, progressive viewpoints were at the forefront of governmental thinking from that time to this. These beliefs culminated in the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, the first man to reject the precepts and the essential nature of the U.S. Constitution. George F. Will, in a piece in the Manhattan Institute, outlines the Wilsonian approach. The United States has arrived at this point, as Will lays it out, due to a long-running clash between two Princetonians. James Madison, the principal author of the Constitution and fourth president of the United States, and a pre-revolutionary graduate of the College of New Jersey, later renamed Princeton University, and Woodrow Wilson, Princeton class of 1879, president of that same Princeton University from 1902 to 1910, a left-wing leader, and the 28th president of the United States. Madison designed the Constitution to divide and limit governmental power to protect liberty and natural rights. So Wilson claimed, along with other progressives and many liberals, that Madison's Constitution is outdated in the modern world of democracy, large organizations, and scientific knowledge. Wilson and his fellow progressives have thus aimed to undo Madison's separation of powers by centralizing power in the presidency, reformulating judicial review in terms of majority rule and giving expert administrators more leverage over national policy. Wilson, in short, aimed to modernize American government for efficiency, majoritarianism, and administrative expertise while projecting American ideals upon the wider world. Will, who earned a graduate degree in politics at Princeton, is solidly on Madison's side in this ongoing conflict. Well, as am I. Upon noting that Wilson lost a choice of location for a graduate school when Princeton's president, Will concludes, When Wilson lost, he had one of his characteristic tantrums, went into politics, and ruined the 20th century, unquote. Will's animosity towards Wilson tends to the intellectual, but other writers are not so measured. In Jonah Goldberg's Remnant podcast, the mere mention of Wilson's name summons a piece of the Lord of the Rings soundtrack that portends pure evil. Goldberg has also labeled Wilson, quote, the 20th century's first fascist dictator, unquote, in his 2008 book, Liberal Fascism. And in an article in Real Clear History, author Paula Spann provides the unambiguous title of Why Wilson is the Most Hated President. Quote, the Constitution was not meant to hold the government back to the times of horses and wagons. Unquote. Wilson wrote in his scholarly tome, Constitutional Government in the United States. Wilson deplored the way the branches of government checkmated each other to stall progress. Or what he saw, of course, as progress and he admired the British parliamentary system as more efficient. The problem, at least in the conservative critique, is what results. Again, in George Will's words, quote, concentrate as much power in Washington, concentrate as much Washington power as possible in the executive, and concentrate enough experts in the executive branch to administer a much larger government, unquote. And it was Wilson, adds Robert George, who made progressivism a doctrine, not just a sensibility, he's the guy who laid out the justifications and ideas. And that belief system that Wilson laid out for government was under the false patina of helping the individual. Yet in reality, only the state was capable of making the most fundamental of decisions for individuals in Wilson's thinking. This was reflected in his New Freedom Doctrine, laid out in 1912. Quote, Now it came to me, as this interesting man talked, that the Constitution of the United States had been made under the the dominion of the Newtonian theory. You have only to read the papers of the Federalists to see that fact written on every page. They speak of the checks and balances of the Constitution and use to express their idea the simile of the organization of the universe and particularly of the solar system. How? By the attraction of gravitation the various parts are held in their orbits and then they proceed to represent Congress, the judiciary, and the president as a sort of imitation of the solar system. The trouble with the theory is that government is not a machine but a living thing according to Wilson. It falls not under the theory of the universe, but the theory of organic life. It is accountable to Darwin, not to Newton. It is modified by its environment, necessitated by its tasks, shaped to its functions by the sheer pressure of life. No living thing can have its organs offset against each other as checks and live, Wilson, like his 2008 successor, in terms of both the presidency and ideology, likes to write and say things that, Well, they sound really profound when they're said, but if you actually spend, oh, I don't know, about five to 10 seconds thinking about them, you realize that they are in fact full of excrement. Of course, the body has checks and balances. Here's one example. The stomach sends a clear signal. I am hungry, so feed me. The brain allied to the stomach is telling me that I want a piece of pie right out of the oven. I'm I'm hungry after all, the stomach is telling me this but the pie is scalding hot. My burned mouth and the nerve endings there and will tell my eyes and brain to knock it off and wait a bit. 10 minutes, stomach, and then we can look at having that pie. Plus, your waistline's getting a little bit bigger, so I don't know, maybe you ought to think about having that second piece of pie. The brain should work as a check on the stomach, but when that check is removed, the skin steps in. Checks and balances. The Constitution is no different. The Constitution can, is constructed of checks and balances, and there are certain aspects of the Constitution which need to be perpetual. Number one, the presidency should not have a over the other two branches. Number two, the Supreme Court serves as a check on the power of the other two, but not as a legislative body. And number three, the legislature, the Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, they the ones who make the law, the presidents enact the law, and the judiciary then decides whether that law is in place. That was established all the way back in 1787, and it has held us together to this day. The concept that we should omit aspects of the Constitution to create a, a better union is horrific the checks and balances are critical and the separations of power are critical to understanding the success of this nation Wilson then goes on to say adding to his organic theory quote on the contrary Its life, the life of the government, is dependent upon their quick cooperation, their ready response to the commands of instinct or intelligence, their amicable community of purpose. I love the concept of that Wilson talks here about instinct. Like, what is he? A government is instinctual? Back to Wilson. Government is not a body of blind forces. It is a body of men with highly differentiated functions, no doubt, in our modern day of specialization, but with a common task and purpose. And their cooperation is indispensable. Their warfare, fatal. There can be no successful government without the intimate, instinctive coordination of the organs of life and action. Living political constitutions must be Darwinian instruction practice. Society is a living organism and must obey the laws of life, not of mechanics. It must develop. All that progressives ask or desire is permission in an era when development, evolution is the scientific word to interpret the Constitution according to the Darwinian principle. All they ask is recognition of the fact that a nation is a living thing and not a machine, I love that part of Wilson's where he says there can be no successful government. He uttered those words on the 124th year of the republic by the man aspiring to be the 28th president. I love there can be no successful government after a century. Wilson was such a phony. Thank God I'm done with the quoting of him. I I can barely stand it. The irony is that much of the new freedom speech railed against special interests and even talks of the American people not being children or wards of the state, but by driving a living constitution and rejecting the concepts of checks and governmental power, Wilson was operating in exact contradictions to his stated goals. And looking at the landscape of American progressivism today, it is hard not to see the same contradictions, What Wilson misses in his comparisons is not in Newton nor Darwin. We need to go much older to the Bible and the seven deadly sins. The founders knew their Bible and understood the nature of human desire, hence checks and balances. Wilson, although versed in the Bible, clearly did not ingest this most important of its teachings. And now we come to John Dewey. Quote, It is one of the great mistakes of education, to make reading and writing constitute the bulk of the schoolwork during the first two years, unquote. John Dewey. Why so much on Wilson? Because his progressivism provided the intellectual impetus for the teachings of a failed teacher to warp public education. And that failed teacher? John Dewey. Born Born in 1859, Dewey spent two years as a high school teacher in Oil City, Pennsylvania, and one year as an elementary school teacher in the small town of Charlotte, Vermont. After this three-year stint, Dewey decided that he was unsuited for teaching primary or secondary school. After studying with progressive thinkers of the day, Dewey received his Ph.D. from the School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. In 1884, he accepted a faculty position at the University of Michigan with the help of George Sylvester Morris, a professor of philosophy. For those who think that a lot of the teachings, and, if you will, the very ethos that has emanated, I would say, oozed or seeped out of the academy of today and into, whether it be K through12 or the boardroom, thinks that this is somehow a recent phenomenon, just think about Dewey. The man couldn't even last in a classroom longer than three years. So where did he go to the one place that a field teacher would end up? The academy? the university. Wonderful. In 1894, Dewey joined the newly founded University of Chicago, where he developed his belief in rational empiricism, becoming associated with the newly emerging pragmatic philosophy. His time at the University of Chicago resulted in four essays, collectively entitled Thought and Its Subject Matter, published with collected works from his colleagues at Chicago under the collective title Studies in Logical Theory. During that time, Dewey also initiated the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools to actualize the pedagogical beliefs that provided material for his first major work on education, the school and society. However, disagreements with the administration ultimately caused his resignation from the university and soon after that he relocated near the East Coast. In 1899, Dewey was elected president of the American Psychological Association. From 1904 until his retirement in 1930, he was a professor of philosophy at Columbia University. Well, at Columbia University, you have Dewey and then later a certain graduate who you might have heard of, Barack Obama. In 1905, Dewey became president of the American Philosophical Association and he was a longtime member of the American Federation of Teachers. Along with the historians Charles A. Beard and James Harvey Robinson and the economist Thorstein Veblen, Dewey is one of the founders of the New School. Beard is appropriate here as he was among the first American historians who attacked the founders in his works. One of the challenges with covering Dewey is the sheer volume of his writings. There was an old saw that those who cannot do teach. In Dewey's case, since he was a failed teacher, he went one step further and wrote about teaching. And boy, did he ever. The collected works of John Dewey covers 71 years of Dewey's writings in a mere, oh, I don't know, 37 volumes. (laughs) Well, the Library of Congress lists 370 books written about Dewey. But there is still enough core content to discern his true beliefs, and you've already heard some of them in the quotations that I provided at the beginning of this podcast and particularly on this section of Dewey. At a high level, Dewey rejected fundamental morality and overt religiosity in education. He also dismissed the fundamental focus on outcomes, or I should say group outcomes, in terms of core math, science, and reading. Remember that? He started off believing that children should not really learn to read in those first two years of schooling. Dewey's vision is also captured by historian and theologian Roussas Rastuni in his book, The Messianic Character of American Education. Rastuni says, quote, Dewey believed you learned through your senses and you learn by doing. Thus, the past has no value. He couldn't see a need for the study of history, Latin, Greek, or even English. By fostering the idea that all education should rest on experience, he minimized the significance of book learning, Unquote. Remember all that chapter on Wilson and his sort of rejection of the old, that everything should be focused in on the new? This was Dewey in a nutshell. Dewey's ultimate plan was based on using public schools, minimizing the role of parents, because they might teach things like religion, changing the roles of teachers to facilitators, de-emphasizing Latin, the classics, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, de-emphasizing Western history and history in general, including the study of the Constitution and capitalism, and providing a more secular environment. Remember that part about minimizing the roles of parents? That sound, uh, sound familiar to anybody? Morgan K. Williams, writing for the University of West Florida, provides an essay entitled John Dewey in the 21st Century. Williams tries to capture Dewey directly from his writings. Quote, Dewey described progressive education as a product of discontent with traditional education, which imposes adult standards, subject matter, and methodologies. He believed that traditional education, as just described, was beyond the scope of young learners. As described by Dewey, progressive education should include socially engaging learning experiences that are developmentally appropriate for young children. Dewey thought that effective education came primarily through social interactions and that the school setting should be considered a social institution. He considered education to be a process of living and not a preparation for future living. This set of beliefs set Dewey apart from philosophers that supported traditional classroom settings, unquote. In some ways, it would be hard to imagine that Dewey, the guy who believed in students working at their own pace, that teachers should be facilitators and not the font of knowledge, would embrace the destruction of gifted or advanced placement programs in the name of equity, as has been done at American schools today. But Dewey was also the guy who would put his progressivism ahead of his ideology. Aaron Edmondson, a scholar on Dewey, agrees that Dewey was an abysmal communicator, He argues that readers can overcome Dewey's lack of clarity by recognizing that he subordinates his philosophy to his progressive politics. Using that approach, Edmondson can provide a concise overview of Dewey's ideas without being weighed down by his writing. And in addition to his social classrooms, what are those ideas? As a microcosm of social life, the school provided Dewey a convenient place to socialize students into adherence of progressive ideals, that is, collectivism and statism. Dewey insisted that teachers should not impose abstract aims or external standards on their students within the classroom. Instead, he endorsed learning through play and hands-on activities and defended an ad hoc curriculum that favored neither vocational nor academic subjects. Dewey maintained that socialization was just as important as teaching essential skills like reading. Edmondson concludes that our current confusion over standards and goals is a natural consequence of Dewey's insistence on such fluid educational standards. Edmondson includes chapters on the educational thought of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. What might appear to be an unusual detour is very informative discussion of alternatives to Dewey, and at times Dewey insisted that he was the heir apparent to Jefferson. Still, Edmondson shows that Dewey departed from Jefferson and Franklin by repudiating those founders' shared belief that a vibrant republic requires an education designed to cultivate personal virtue. Dewey's radicalism is nowhere more apparent than his rejection of the founders' education ideals. And one of the principles of that rejection Personal virtue, virtue alone, is not the virtue of the collective. That is what is more important to Dewey, and arguably today, in the tragedy of American education, the role of John Dewey by Alberto M. Piedra. The author writes, "Quote: The well-known American philosopher John Dewey was probably the most influential." of all American educationalists whose tendencies towards socialization and secularism are pretty apparent in all of his works. As Christopher Dawson referring to Dewey reminds us, in his views, our purpose for education is not the communication of knowledge, but the sharing of a social experience, so that the child shall become integrated into the democratic community. It was Dewey, the principal figure in the progressive educational movement in the United States, who analyzed the human mind in the way human knowledge is acquired. And he offers that empiricist theory, according to which ideas are acquired through experience. Now, the theorists of this movement believe in an educational system that claims that both truth and knowledge are the results of observation and experience. Their ideas in education derive from a philosophy of pragmatism. Their objective was, and still is, to change the fundamental approach to teaching and learning and contribute to the establishment and the development of public schools in America. Is there a touch of socialization and government interference in the educational system proposed by Dewey? Personally, I believe the answer is a simple, categorical yes, unquote, concludes Piedra. Following Dewey, the progressive movement propagated the idea that if teachers taught today as they taught in the past, we would rob them of tomorrow. For these prophets of education, the central ethical imperative was the concept and advocacy of the society, the one and ultimate ethical ideal of humanity. I wonder all the great minds of Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and Cicero, not to mention the scholastics and other great scholars of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment would, re- would react to the reconstructive educational theories of the progressive education movement of today. Quote, the following comes from an admirer and contemporary of Dewey's, the foremost interpreter in educational terms of the significant social and industrial changes through which we have passed, and the one who has done more since 1895 to think out and state for us an educational philosophy suited to the changing conditions in our national life is John Dewey. Believing that the public school is the chief remedy for society's ills, he has tried to change the school's work to make it a miniature of society itself, So where does the concept of critical race theory, one of the central debate uh, positions within modern education, fit into this narrative? First, let let us not mince words. Critical race theory exists, and it exists in the school's. I find it exasperating that the same folks who advocate for the 1619 Project, now in over 4,000 school districts, deny that CRT is real. The 1619 Project is critical race theory. Consider the definition of CRT by the American Bar Association. Quote, CRT is not a diversity and inclusion training, but a practice of integrating the role of race and racism into society that emerged in the legal academy and spread to other fields of scholarships. Now, consider this directly from the 1619 Project. Quote, to regard 1619 as our nation's birth year, Doing so requires us to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. The issue contains essays on different aspects of contemporary American life, from mass incarceration to rush hour traffic, that have their roots in slavery and its aftermath. Each essay makes up a modern phenomenon familiar to all and reveals its history." No difference. Second, a brief word about the concept that a rejection of CRT and its 1619 project Spawn is a rejection of the history of our nation's racist ills such as slavery or Jim Crow. Gaslighting is a part of politics, but this position is pernicious. As a schoolboy in late 1970s Wisconsin in an all white school, I was presented with several works in different types of media. The first, was the miniseries Roots, which garnered 33% of all TVs watching the final? We were also assigned Richard Wright's native son, his autobiography Black Boy, and the 1972 movie Sounder. Terms such as slavery, plantation, Jim Crow, sharecropper, and racism were as well known as George Washington and World War II. And Abraham Lincoln was as famous to us for the Emancipation Proclamation as the prosecution of the Civil War. Later, as a teacher in the early 1990s, 30 years ago, I myself taught American history courses that featured Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, and W.E.B. Bois. I should also add, I taught about Japanese internment in World War II. That, unlike slavery, was not in the textbook because the writers, ex teachers, and so forth wished to preserve the legacy of FDR intact. I'm not a fan of anecdotal justification, but my claim that American children have learned about slavery for at least the better part of 30 or 40 decades and racism in America is not conjecture or observation. I taught these courses myself. It is a clear distinction to read about, understand, and acknowledge the sins of our past on the one hand, and perpetuate those sins with the advocacy today of segregation, white guilt, and the low expectations put upon people of color. That is the difference between our history and critical race theory. These are the philosophies of the far left, and they are now in our classroom to shape our children. But the concept of a classroom reflecting society itself and the social engineering perpetuated by Dewey and his acolytes make the classroom a perfect hothouse for germinating these theories. Quote Society is the process of associating in such ways that experiences, ideas, emotions, values, are transmitted and made common. To this active process, both the individual and the institutionally organized may truly be said to be subordinate, unquote. John Dewey. In a separate podcast, I once discussed the nature of the seven deadly sins in history and politics. Central traits such as gluttony, lust, and greed all emanate from an innate human desire for more. I also know the exceptional success of capitalism was to channel these desires in such a way as to benefit society, as opposed to a single person or a small group. Leftists today would argue that there is little difference between a medieval lord and a big business titan, well, except for two things. First, the medieval lord had slaves and serfs, and titans of today have neither, and second, When some count or duke or local strongman took your chicken, it was a win for him and a loss for you. When Jeff Bezos got super rich, he did so by delivering an unparalleled e-commerce experience that benefits hundreds of millions. How many people are actually coerced into using Amazon? Elon Musk is rich not because he steals chickens, but because he makes things that people want. He wins and so do you. The founders understood the nature of human avarice and thus constructed a system to rein in these aspects. The progressives aimed, and still seek to do, deconstruct that system to remake the world as they see fit. Dewey would like that. Progressives miss that in dismantling the checks and balances and separations of powers inherent in our constitution They open it up to nefarious figures who will not possess their supposedly good goals. If Donald Trump attempted to circumnavigate the Constitution to his ends, where did he learn that? This is not chicken and egg. The progressives desired a living Constitution and presidents abusing their power and a supine Congress is what they have wrought. What Dewey did in the area of education was to apply the progressive ethos to the schoolroom. Did he envision the paramount position of teachers' unions, the elimination of gifted programs, the imposition of critical race theory teachings, the 1619 Project, and segregation according to color? Probably not, though Wilson probably would have approved of all of that. But by nationalizing the concept of education and espousing school for building the harmony of the collective society and then leaving it to educators without parental input on what that collective would believe, John Dewey is ultimately the author of much of what is wrong with our schools. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. Check out all of our podcasts. We are... Very close to over a hundred podcasts. Check them all out. Thank you.